Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Tarun Kapoor, Chief Digital Transformation Officer at Virtua Health. I'm Kate Gamble, Managing Editor and Director of Social Media. In this podcast, Dr. Kapoor talks about what he believes are the biggest challenges when it comes to driving digital transformation and how leaders can face them, why the emphasis should be on product management rather than project management, and the critical understanding leaders need to have on the difference between AI and automation. Thanks again for uh, taking some time. I know there's there's a ton going on, but uh, it's nice uh, to get, get to talk yeah. to you. There's a ton going on everywhere, but thanks for reaching out. Yeah, sure. Really interested in, in talking to you about your role and then what you guys are doing at Virtua. Yeah, so lots of uh, different directions we can go with this. So my name is Tarun Kapoor. I am a internal medicine hospitalist by training. I've been here at Virtua for 15 years and been very fortunate that I am um, now on my fourth or fifth role here at the organization. A previously a hospitalist, informaticist, was a chief medical officer of our medical group, head of the population health. And then in 2019, I took on digital health as a stretch assignment. And the best career advice I can ever give to anyone is it's always better to be lucky than good. And then March 2020 comes along and all of a sudden digital health accelerates more so in a few weeks than it had in previous decades. So that's the story about me. And, and so we specifically spun up a digital transformation office in 2020 to take advantage of the rapid changes and the rapid adoption that happened during that time and to see how could we hard code that because everyone was just, it was amazing everything that people were doing and how much advancement we were able to make in a relatively short period of time. How could we, understanding that this pandemic would eventually ease and so, so with some of the urgency that we had behind it, how do we create an environment where innovation can continue to happen? And most important thing about innovation, it's not the experimentation, it's the adoption. And I think that's the key piece. And so we, we took a model out of Silicon Valley, an incubator accelerator model. And our idea is anything that a traditional operational division would normally do in two or three years, we partner with them and we try to help them pull it off in six months. And that's where the idea came from. And we maintain a portfolio. We rebalance the portfolio several times a year, just like a 401k. And we go where the organization needs us to go. So that's a little bit about the digital transformation office and hence my title as chief digital transformation officer. Okay. So yeah, I want to get into what some of those initiatives have been. Can you call some of those out? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we have a portfolio of, of domain areas mm -hmm. and, and they, they ebb and flow over the years. Again, our office has been, was formally created in the end of 2020 but areas that we talk about are, we use the term digital front door, but I really don't like the term digital front door. So we, I just don't believe in the concept of there's one door into a house. And therefore, we have digital doors. We do a lot of work with the clinical transformation, both on the inpatient side and on the ambulatory front. We do a bunch of work with our own colleagues, our own employees. What are the digital tools that they can take advantage of? Consumer financial journey is another one, and then patient engagement. Uh, but not talking about so much satisfaction scores, but how do you actually build tools that make a health system easier to use? Our opening slide for one of the projects is, why can you two-way text with your veterinarian, hairdresser, literally any small business 
on the planet you can two-way text with, but you can't do that with your multi-billion dollar health system. And, okay. and, and, and so that's the type of engagement we're talking about, it's not just satisfaction scores, it's how do you literally make it easier to use your services? Yeah. And I, I would imagine something like that really came when COVID did start to ease and you have to really kind of step back and look at how all this digital transformation is affecting not just patients, but but clinicians and how to kind of ease that that workflow a little. I think you bring up an absolutely wonderful point of when we talk about consumers in healthcare, we try to talk about the triple consumer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have the patient consumer. It's not negotiable. But if you start looking at it from the perspective of the clinician consumer, your physicians, your nurses, advanced practitioners, et cetera, but also your staff, your consumers, right? Because in healthcare, one of the most immediate uh, disruptions to to staffing for us was uh, Amazon coming to town. You know, there are a bunch of folks that say, you know what, I think working at Amazon is a, is a, a viable opportunity. These are lifelong healthcare people. And they're like, nope, I think this is, that's the place to go. So it's a triple consumer. What historically happens, not always, but historically happens is when we roll out something from a dictology or a digital perspective, it's advantageous to one of the consumers, usually at the expense of the other ones. And what we try our best is we try to see how can we cliche where win-win or triple win. If you can get all three consumer bases to benefit from it, absolutely, it's wonderful. But if, if someone has to give up something, how do you minimize the the downside to one consumer group at the, if the other group is benefiting? I think that's a way we try to think about it. Yeah, that seems like it, at the core of innovation, it keeps coming back to that, achieve that balance. How do you really work to address that? How do we address the balance between the different consumers? Yeah, and really wanting to make sure that, as, as you said, technology that helps one group isn't going to put a lot of burden on the others. So maybe we can talk through an example of one that hasn't generally gone well, and you're actually seeing lots of news about it across the country, and that's messaging your clinician through your your portal. And so now a number of health systems have stated that we want to charge, we will charge you for answering those those messages. And Virtual is not there yet, but Virtual very well may choose to do that as well. But the question that I think we have to take a step back at and think through is like, well, why is the patient consumer actually messaging to begin with? They're not sitting there bored out of their mind and just having, you know, like I have no one to talk to. They, they have a question. Yeah. And what they're trying to do, we actually look at these things as a form of access. Okay. They're not accessing an appointment, but they're accessing the clinician's mind to help them with a problem that they're struggling with. Yeah. And in some cases, some of those messages don't require a clinician to answer, Mm -hmm. right? I need a refill. Well, there's reasonably straightforward algorithms that can be put forward. Like you have have appointment on the books for X number of months from now. I see XYZ has been met. Don't send an unnecessary message. Yeah. At the same time, why I think messaging has been you ask a lot of clinicians, what do they think about the uptick in messaging that's happened? And, and we look at our numbers. Since the pandemic, the number of medical advice messages that our clinicians are getting has gone up 300% since 2020. Yeah. So the clinicians are looking at this and say, wait a minute, I don't have any additional time to answer these messages. The questions are probably as complex as ever before because the easy stuff is all gone. We try to take the easy stuff away. 
So that means by definition, the only messages left behind are the hard ones. So what do we do to a make it easier to for them to to answer those questions? But what do we also do to change our processes to give them the time and energy process to answer those questions? And in some of those cases, if you know the clinician takes twenty or thirty minutes perhaps to answer that type of question, I don't think a patient consumer would have much of a problem saying, you know what, you spent a lot of time answering my question, you just saved me a visit. Yeah. I don't mind you being reimbursed right. for all that time you spent. So I think diving into the nuances of what is the problem, and this is the thing we always get to, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And then asking this question again, and then again, and again. And by the time you peel it back five times, you start to understand maybe that's the actual problem. And where I think a lot of digital and tech has gone awry is they try to come up with a solution for the first problem without peeling back and trying to figure out what was the fourth or fifth problem that was preceding all of that. And that becomes a hard part to do. Yeah, because you're talking about changing the thinking, which is not easy to do. Yeah, there's a um, there's a diagram I, I show a lot in my presentations internally and externally by Henrik Nyberg. Uh, he was um, one of the coaches at Spotify, Lego, and he does his own consulting work. And he's got this diagram of where the consumer says, I want a car. And then people start building a car and at the end they have a car. Or the person says, I want a car. And then you ask yourself, for what? Right, right. Well, I want to get from point A to point B. And what you first thing you do is you give them a skateboard. And they look at you and it's like, you're crazy. Like, wait a minute, I wanted a car. I said, I know, but at least I gave you a skateboard this week. Mm -hmm. Use it and get back to me. Right. And then you, you start iterating off of that. And eventually you may still end up with a car. In his diagram, he, you actually end up with a convertible, which is different. But the other key learning is that I love from his diagram is if you live in Amsterdam, you would have stopped at the bicycle. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to park your car. And I think that's the key. Sometimes iterating all the way to the end makes sense. Sometimes it's okay to stop early. Mm -hmm. And that requires, to your point, the discipline of, of thinking a certain way. Yeah. And I guess this is the big question, but how do you do that? How do you change the processes where, where you are asking that question and, and going deeper, like you said? It takes time. First of all, you got to have a crazy group of people who believe in it. So I'm very fortunate that I have a, a group of fellow crazies who live and breathe this concept of, I, I know you think you want this. And I'm not saying no, but would you be willing to tolerate this, which is one fraction of what you thought you wanted? But what ends up happening is the first ones are hard, right? Because they're looking at you like, okay, so so you learn to compromise. The first couple ones, you know what? You don't come back with a skateboard. You come back with a bicycle. Because mm -hmm. right? you come up, you, they asked for a car and you showed up with a skateboard. I mean, you're getting laughed out of the room. Right, right. So you compromise. Okay, I'll at least come back with a, with a bicycle. I would argue our team is still not fully in the skateboard mode yet. Okay. We still come back with bicycles more often than we come back with skateboards. But you at least start to build street cred. Yeah. Because the fear, I think, of the internal consumer is if you bring them a bicycle or a skateboard, you're not coming back again. Mm -hmm. right? That's your final product. Right. And so if you start to show people, I'm just bringing you this, but I'm not done. Mm -hmm. I will be back with the next iteration and the next iteration. Then you start to build that trust factor. And the biggest killer of innovation and the adoption side of innovation, because I, I try to argue that there are two sides to innovation. Yeah. There's the experimentation side of innovation, and then mm -hmm. there's the adoption slash scaling side of innovation. 
the biggest killer of either one of those sides of it is fear because they're fearful that what you're coming with as your new idea and your new adoption of that idea is going to potentially end up with a bad outcome. And in healthcare, that's even more so. As a physician, I took the Hippocratic Oath. One of the things at the core of medicine is the statement of primum non necessary, which means, first of all, do no harm. That statement doesn't sit really well with innovation. Yeah. So I think the way we've modified it for healthcare is we will make mistakes and we will bring you solutions we will give you will not always be perfect, but they will be safe. And the two are different things. You can still be imperfect yet safe. Hmm. And that's the mindset we bring. If we can prove to you it's safe, but it may be imperfect, will you iterate with us? And I think that's where we found traction. Okay. You start to build on that, build on that, that trust and credibility and- I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you be. And I I think what we're actually starting to get to now in healthcare is a mindset that has existed outside of healthcare for decades. And that is the difference between project management and product management. I talked to my team, we talk about Procter and Gamble. Mm-hmm. Tide. Tide is constantly being iterated on. Sometimes Tide is good enough for what it's doing right now. And then someone says, you know what? I'm noticing something happening out there. Like, I think it'd be easier if we could, could we put Tide in a pod? Mm-hmm. I said, oh, okay, let's bring it to the lab. And we work on putting it in a pod and then we give it back. And now it's Tide pod is out in the marketplace. But you know what is still in the marketplace? Old Tide is still mm-hmm. in the marketplace too. It's still part of this collection of products. And then another thing comes along, someone points out, or whether it's myself or someone on my team or someone who's on the the traditional service line owner says, I'm noticing there's a conversation going on there about washing our clothes in cold water. Oh, hey, bring it back to the lab. Let's talk about cold water tide. Mm. And now cold water tide is part of the product offering. And, And so it's a versus project management. People love to say, I'm done. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you want to get into this innovation world, you can't have that mentality. That doesn't work. As ebbs and flows, there'll be maintenance modes and then innovation modes, but it's never really done. And I I think that is a change in mindset. Yeah. And I guess you really want to find people who are okay with that and, you know, want to keep, keep improving, keep iterating, as you said. Yes. Just because it ain't broke doesn't mean it shouldn't be fixed at some point anyway. Right, right. A little bit of a different mindset. Yeah. So it, obviously you, you said you started out as a physician. What made you wanted to get to get involved in, uh, I guess it was first the informatics side? Yep. Okay. What drove that for you? So what, I, I finished training. I uh, actually joined a startup coming out of training and it was a great experience, learned a ton. And then I was at a, you know, another transition point and I kept on looking. It's like, where are the opportunities? And so I was like, you know, I was still handwriting my notes. As a, as a practicing physician, like all the time. And I was I was writing my orders out on a piece of paper and that'd be a better way to do this. So I wanted to learn more about healthcare IT, electronic medical records. And I got my first real opportunity when I started doing some informatics work on computerized order entry. And what was the eye opener of that entire process was writing the electronic order stuff. That was the easy part. Was really eye opening was you actually, we actually have to have a separate conversation. How many of these orders should we just get rid of to begin with? And that became a recurring theme. And I, th- I think this is where the word digital, we do ourselves a disservice, at least in healthcare. We say the word digital and we're assuming everyone's speaking the same thing. And I, I'm partially at fault with this. I have the term digital in my title. So I'm, I'm also contributing to this. 
I think there are actually three phases of digital that we need to be talking about. Mm -hmm. There's digitization, mm -hmm. which is literally taking it from analog and putting it into binary ones and zeros. Right. right. There's digitalization, which is changing the processes, the classic informatics world, right? So that was the world I was living in. And now there's a third component of that, and that's the digital transformation. And is how do you actually change the business? And what services do you add to it? Do you offer differently? And what services do you get rid of? To me, that's the realm of digital. And you could be at different places, and everyone's got different skill sets in that. So I think that's just been a lesson that has, I was doing digitalization, not digitization. I was doing digitalization as an mm -hmm. informatic. Yeah. Now I'm spending a lot more time on the digital transformation side, hence my title of actually, how do we change the business behind mm -hmm. that? And being able to understand those three realms and be able to flex across those three realms, I think is a skill set that's important for any CIO, CDO, CIDO, whatever alphabet you know you use, that is the key understanding. So it's not necessarily linear. You go from digitization to digitalization to digital transformation, there's, yeah, like I said, it's not necessarily linear all the time. 100% agree. I, I think sometimes you could start with, I had this idea of a completely different way of offering care. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a digital transformation idea. Right, right. But the digitization may not be even done yet. So you got to say, okay, I, maybe I start on this side of it, on this all the way on the right-hand side of this, and I have to work my way backwards. It's like, well, how do I change the processes? And before I even change the processes, can I even do this in a digital fashion, right? Can I even digitize this? One of the ones that no one has really figured out yet, I mean, there's some early promising technologies is in telemedicine, how do I have any type of physical exam on you? Right. The answer is I don't. Now there's some very interesting stuff coming down the pipeline with transdermal optical imaging where the camera can look at your face and pick up your heart rate That's by right. looking at the reflection of light through your skin it's potentially could look at blood pressure, mm -hmm. right? So this is where telemedicine has hit some limits. And you look at the, the numbers out there, telemedicine is great, but it's only used by about 15% of the population right now. There is a voltage drop on some things I can't do really easily with you through a telemedicine visit. Yeah, and, for sure. Right, so this is where I think, to your point, it goes in both directions. Sometimes the technology is ready to digitalize, digitize the processes mm -hmm. are ready, but the business and the payment model may not be ready or vice versa. Yeah. Payment model be ready, but the technology is not ready. And that working dynamic of understanding where and where to go after is, um, I think, also important piece of, for someone who's in, the, in this type of role. Yeah. Looking across the industry, it's becoming a bit more common for physicians to get into digital transformation type roles. And I just wanted to get your take on that and kind of, you know, maybe the uh, the perspective that a physician can bring. Yes, there's there's no doubt there are more and more physicians, nurses, folks with clinical backgrounds mm -hmm. who are entering this space. Um, is it a requirement that you be that? No. Are there potentially some advantages? Sure, because I, I've been on the front lines and I've seen some of the things and I, I and trust me, the vast majority of doctors and nurses out there have literally probably said to themselves a dozen times, you know how much better this would be if we could do this? Right. And I, you know, I, I think, can I code? No. Do you want me coding? No. But I think the superpower for clinicians who are interested in getting into the space is, can you tell the story? And can you walk between the worlds? Can I do enough of understanding 
translating the clinician's needs to the technologist, but also going back and be able to understand the technologist's constraints and say, and go back to the clinicians and say, listen, I know you wanted the car, but what about that bicycle? And if you can walk between those worlds, that's, I think, where I found a, a solid footing for myself in this world. So as as the technologies keep changing and evolving, and as the clinician roles change, I, I would think that that's something where you really have to kind of say on top of that, but can that be a, a challenge in your role too, to just really make sure that many sides are being heard? Yes. And as remarkable as the growth has been on the technology front, you know, whether you subscribe to Moore's Law or some variation of Moore's Law, of just how remarkable the next set of doublings is going to be. I think it's important for folks on the traditional technology side to recognize the exact same thing, if not faster, is happening on the medical knowledge side. Mm. Medical knowledge is doubling. The number I've heard is somewhere between 45 to 75 days. It's remarkable. How in the world could we ever ask our clinicians to keep up with this? And where I, but what I do feel if we recognize it, you know, where especially where AI disruption can come into play is if it parallels in healthcare, how it's paralleled in other fields that have been more early disrupt, more earlyly disrupted. It tends to disrupt the middle and the two extremes, the highly humanistic and the highly technical, tend to stay within the realm of the human being. Yeah, AI tends to sit in the middle of the rules. And so, if I were to get a cancer diagnosis. Would I trust an algorithm to match my genotypic profile with any of the thousands of studies out there that match my genotype and that trial better than a human physician would? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I there's no way the human keep, physician yeah. can keep it's not possible. Exactly. But I would still want to hear the diagnosis from a human analog voice. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That's I, I'm not prepared to hear it from Siri yet. Yeah. Even though Siri may have talked to the doc and say, hey, you know what, I think right, I recommend this trial for you, for this patient. I, right, yeah. I, I, that's the hyper-humanistic side of, I want to hear it because I want to talk about what's the side effects of the drugs. What's this going to be like for me and my family? And I think the other end of it too is the hyper-technical. Do you see, if you're in a motor vehicle accident with rupture, this, this, and that, a computer is coming over and sitting on top of you and is just starting to operate? I, yeah, I'm not seeing that in the immediate future. Right. But I can certainly see the augmentation piece happening right in the middle. And, and I think the best line that I've heard, it's not the clinician or physician who's going to be replaced by AI. It's the clinician or physician who doesn't use AI who's going to replace the physician who doesn't. Hmm. And you know what? You probably should. Yeah. I think the same conversation probably happened 100 years ago when the stethoscopes came out. Someone says the physician who uses the stethoscope is going to replace the physician who doesn't use the stethoscope. Right. But how's that any different? And, mm-hmm. and I think for from a technology and, and for folks who support technology, how do we help our clinicians become, how do we teach them how to use the stethoscope the same way? How do we create tools that are digestible and usable in their world to help them with their output? And I, I think that's where it becomes very exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. That's a good way to think about it. I mean, it's, it's a tool. At, at its core, AI is a tool. It is a tool. My dad was in agriculture and at the time it was, it was all biotechnology, biotech this, biotech that. And he used to say the same thing. It's like, it's a tool to help you do something and you should use the tool, but the tool is not going to do it by itself. 
Yeah, I guess I would say that the final thing is that, you know, when you do talk about AI, there's a lot of talk about the hype and chat GPT. And I guess just wanted your take on how you feel about something that is that does have new uses and kind of how you approach it. 100% concur. I don't know exactly where we are in our Gartner hype cycle here, but we're still pretty much in the ascendancy of the first curve. I remember where I was when I first used GPT. And I had kind of like a borderline out-of-body experience. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. The first thing I caution people is make sure you understand the difference between automation and AI. We toss those words around as though they're interchangeable and they're anything but, right? So for anyone, you know, maybe read the interview who's a not technology-based, the way, in a very simplistic way that I talk about it is automation is the human sets the rules and the computer repeats it and executes it over and over again. That's pretty classic definition, the standard definition of automation. AI, the human may set the rules initially, or the computer may set the rules, but then the computer is allowed to rewrite the rules as it learns from itself. There are cases in medicine where I don't want the computer rewriting the rules. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with the computer helping me automate, but I don't want you changing the rules as you go along. Yeah. Yeah, that could be dangerous. It could be dangerous. And so how do we bring a an appropriate, healthy degree of skepticism as we go along. You know, again, there's other analogy I've heard. He he heads up, I think his name's Connolly, but he he talks about all of these tools we have in our cars right now. Yeah, you know, blind spot control, blind side turn assist. At the end, human, you're still responsible for the car, right? You're still responsible for it. Are you a better driver with it? Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Am I a better driver with my backup camera? I can see way more with that back of camera than I could ever see with that mirror. Mm. But I'm still responsible for the stuff that's behind me. And if I hit something, that's on me. So I think that is the way we have to be thinking about these tools is, of course, they'll make you better. And actually, you're if you're not willing to take them on, that says something else about you. Yeah. But the human responsibility still sits there, at least for the near future. Yeah. And then we'll see what the next three years show. And who knows, everything I said may be wrong. But at least for the foreseeable future, which is for me, three years, that's the way we have to do it. To me, AI literacy is the biggest challenge we have in front of us. How do we get everyone talking about this and understanding and having a deep, meaningful conversation and not just throwing buzzwords around? That's the opportunity for the CIO and the CDO at hand is Mm -hmm. one of my biggest tasks inside of our organization is promoting a conversation around the literacy of these tools. When's the right time? When's the not the right time? When should we be skeptical? When should we bot in? That's a conversation that has to be happening organization-wide. Yeah. And I guess there's no blueprint for that because organizations are going to be so different in their journeys, their size, but you're saying that you have to figure this out. I think there are a couple blueprints that could be Mm -hmm. used. I think high reliability and safety. Mm -hmm. If you look at cultures, organizational cultures where you ask like, well, whose responsibility is safety? And they'll say everyone's responsibility is safety. Yes, of course, the quality of the department is responsible for doing this part. This department is responsible for doing that part. But everyone has to have that mindset of safety. Maybe lumping AI and automation into the exact same bucket doesn't quite fit, but everyone should be thinking about what are these tools? They should be getting educated on these tools. You can't just leave this to your IT department and say, well, that's an IT thing. Mm-mm. That would be like saying, well, only finance gets to use Excel right. and only legal gets to use Word. 
no, we, we all have to have basic proficiency in, in some of these tools. Yeah. And uh, ability to execute, right? <laughs> well, that to me will differentiate the winners and losers. Yeah. To us, it is, and this is a Steve Jobs quote or a paraphrase of Steve Jobs quotes, you know, ideas are worthless. Execution is, is everything. Mm-hmm. It's those health systems, it's those organizations that are able to effectively execute on what they do that mm-hmm. will differentiate the winners and losers. And in healthcare delivery, there historically have never been losers. And that is about to change. Yeah. Interesting times ahead. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.